I know that hope is the hardest love we carry. This is from a Jane Hirschfield poem called Hope and Love. Again, I know that hope is the hardest love we carry. Now, hope often seems like something impossible to carry. Nothing more than a burden we bear out of obligation or duty. We shuffle our feet forward, careful not to drop this thing that feels more like a wish than a reality. We're just hanging on. We're striving to maintain the appearance of faith, the appearance of a strong faith. And then hope just feels like pretending. But then we have love. This reality of hope, if it is indeed something that is real, its reality and its destination depends on a God who loves us. Not on one who just tolerates us like a babysitter scrolling through their phone while a fussy child screams for attention. He sees us and he knows us. He hears us and he loves us. And his invitation to us is one of flourishing even when we're in the harder places. It is one of generosity even when we have grown weary of praying the same prayer time and time again. It is one of deliverance, even when it seems our enemies are prevailing. God is not threatened by our meager hopes, by our broken desires, our disordered loves, but he can even use those things to refine us and to shape us. I hope that we, as God's people this morning, will will remember that hope is not an unbearable burden. But as Philip Yancey says, that we would come to love God out of gratitude, not out of fear. Anne Lamott, the well-known writer and speaker, says this. She says, trust me on this. We are loved out of all sense of proportion. Yikes and hallelujah. Let's read Psalm 66. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip? For you, O God, have tested us. You've tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads, and we went through fire and through water. You have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. 
Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. The word of the Lord. Now this psalm begins with shout for joy. Now this may be a posture that may not resonate with you at all today. You hear shout for joy and you're, you're checking out. You may have come into this room exhausted from the week before. Anxious about the week ahead. Distracted by unfinished work or an unreconciled conflict. You find it hard to engage here at all. Certainly not with shouts of joy. So when we come in here on a Sunday morning, what, what do we expect? What do we want? We tend to often ignore these, these deeper longings for rest and for joy. But God has created a space for us here. A crea- He's created a space for us to rest, to rejoice, to delight. It's a place where we remember that we are very much a, a part of the story of God's redemption. And that even when we gather, we are getting a little taste of new creation. Peter Lightheart says that we enter with joy, we receive forgiveness with joy, we ascend with joy, we feast with joy, and we depart in joy. The liturgy welcomes the sad, sad world and leads it to the joy of God. There's a Kenyan writer named Yvonne Overwar. And she says, I need a God who wails and who dances. Now, we've talked a good bit this summer about uh, the posture of lamentation, that we can bring our laments, our sorrows, our wailing to God. And that God can even sympathize with our weaknesses. But we also have a God who dances and invites us onto the dance floor, so to speak. And our joy begins with his preparation. It begins with his invitation, his action. We can come as we are and find joy because it is God who reinvigorates us with his presence. It is God who gives the gift of many voices singing together. Who assures us that his grace is greater than our sin. And he satisfies our parched souls with bread and with wine. And perhaps we miss out on this joy when we presume to have it all together. When Sunday just becomes a mere accessory to our week. But as we heard before, we come in with joy, but we also depart with joy. We're taking this joy out into the world. You know, Andy Crouch says that culture is what we make of the world, and this culture is to be shared. And if we are compelled to apply the promise of kingdom come to our work, if God is establishing the work of our hands, we can create a culture that is joyful and beautiful and hopeful. But again, that begins with God's invitation. It begins with God's deliverance. In verse 5, it says, Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through 
the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt in themselves. He turned the sea into dry land. This is looking back uh, to the Exodus when God delivered his people from the hand of the Egyptians. We know the story well that he, he parted the Red Sea and allowed his people to walk through on dry land. And then when the Egyptians pursued them, the sea closed on them. But even more, this, this, this way of God delivering his people um, in, in Exodus is really a paradigm. It's a pattern of how we see God working, how we see God delivering his people. That God is redeeming them. He's establishing a covenant with them that he's going to keep. And it's a story of mission. If you look at the next, the next psalm, Psalm 67, it's one where we see that what God is doing for his people is for the sake of the world. In verse 8, it says, Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. He has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. says you for you O God have tested us you have tried us as silver is tried you brought us into the net you laid a crushing burden on our backs you let men ride over our heads we went through fire and through water yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance now we see through fire and, and through water and that that would take us to Isaiah 43 where it says fear not for I have redeemed you I have called you by name you are mine when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And if we think of the greater context in, in this part of Isaiah, which certainly applies to our psalm here, it's, it's prophesying or looking ahead to where, where Israel is going. They're going into captivity. They're going into exile. And it's a consequence of their sin and their disobedience. God's people are then, they're a weary people. But what, what's beautiful is that God comforts them. Even in that, there is hope of restoration. There is the hope of, of a perfect king and God's provision of it. But it's not the kind of king they expected. It's, a, it's a, a, a king that is referred to elsewhere in Isaiah as a suffering servant. In response to God's deliverance, we, uh, we see this, uh, this offering or these offerings that are offered. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Now this is a response of total dedication. And perhaps there, 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 there's a little bit of a, kind of a, a restrained gratitude here that reflects the gravity of the threat that has now been lifted. That reflects the depth of the offerer's debt. As one commentator, Derek Kidner, says that the, the lavishness of these gifts underlines the point saying in poetic fashion that the whole gamut of sacrificial beasts would scarcely do the occasion justice. They could never bring enough to the table uh, to match what God has done for them. And in order for God's uh, satisfaction to be met, <clears throat> for the people ultimately to be delivered from the death of sin, he gave himself. And so we see Jesus, who is the radiance of God, the Word made flesh, who made His dwelling among us, a light in the darkness, a Jesus who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame, 
A Jesus who is the mediator of a new covenant, whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. A Jesus in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. We can't know this depth of joy, this kind of joy, without this cross. But even more, we can know that our joy is sure because of his resurrection. And this changes us. It delivers us from the bondage of sin, and it shapes us as individuals, but also as a community. In Psalm 66, uh, you can really break it into two parts. Those, those first 12 verses uh, is, is, is a worshiping community, kind of a communal hymn. And the second section, 13 through 20, is more the praise of an individual. And they're put together because we have to see that those things are always working together. They're not exclusive from each other. Uh, about four or five years ago, I was in a pretty low uh, place. And I had a day where, where I was by myself, and, and out loud I said, I think I'm lonely. Now, being an introvert, it, it takes a lot f- for me to be lonely. Uh, but it just, it just felt all of a sudden like this, this weight that I just couldn't carry. Uh, not too long after that, I, I was walking into a coffee shop, and I saw a friend of mine. Uh, we'd been spending some time together. It was kind of a new friend, and uh, he just looked at me. He's like, are you okay? I was like, no. And he's like, let's go outside. So we went to his car, and the, like the moment I shut the door, I just I collapsed and just fell apart. Kind of all that loneliness, all that fear, all that Anger kind of just came pouring out, and he just sat with me. But then he invites me into um, a group of guys that he'd been spending time with, just three other guys. And, um, you know, it turned out to be the very thing that, that I needed and was longing for, maybe even the thing I didn't even know how to pray for. Um, and so since then, the four of us have been meeting almost on a weekly basis, and there's no agenda We just come together and we talk about our lives, our joys, our struggles, our sorrows, our fears, our sin. And I think it's a beautiful picture of how God is using a community, kind of a small community, to shape me as an individual. And using me as an individual to shape that community. You know, as we gather, as we get together every week, you know, it's it's in many ways our version of come and see what God has done for me. And just sharing in that. And I think it's really easy for us to think about our faith in a very private way. Like this is, this is my faith to, to cultivate and to strengthen. But I would say if, if your faith is private, it's just not going to flourish. Your faith is meant to be shared. And in Psalm 66, this is a, this is a worshiping community. We as Hope Presbyterian Church are a worshiping community. And yes, we are a community of individuals, and every single person in here has a voice to say, come and see what God has done for me. No one's story is better than another's. We all share in this reality that we couldn't save ourselves, and God had to do this remarkable work in and through the, in and through the life, um, in and through the life and work of Jesus. There we go of coming with our meager faith and just saying, Jesus, have mercy on me. 
We all have that story. And when we come together and share that together, there's something that happens in this community that is stronger. And then it works the other way. The more we uh, insert ourselves in a community and submit ourselves to a community, we grow as individuals. Uh, there's an old story <clears throat> by Isaac Dennison called uh, Babette's Feast. Um, we almost named one of our kids Babette. Um, call her Babs. Um, that's not true, actually. But you hear the story, and it would actually be pretty wonderful. Um, there's also a movie that's based on the story, but uh, Babette's Feast is the story. It takes place in a tiny, fictional Norwegian town of Berlevag. And central to the story are, are two sisters, and they're the daughters of the town minister. And at the beginning of the story, we see uh, these two sisters um, later in life living in the house that their father had left to them. And we learn that they have a French maid named Babette, who had come to their door 12 years prior as a friendless fugitive, almost mad with grief and fear. The mistress of the house, the mistresses of the house open the door to a massive, dark, deadly, pale woman as the story says. And this, is, of course, is Babette. And with Babette, she had a letter that was written by someone that had explained that Babette had just lost her husband and her son in a civil war in France, and that Babette was in danger. The writer of this letter implored, implored these sisters to take them in, but these sisters didn't have the money to pay her. But Babette insisted that she would work for free for if they sent her away, she would die. <clears throat> it didn't take long for Babette to become a trusted figure and a beloved figure in the community. Twelve years had passed, and Babette rarely referred to her life in France. But one day she mentions that she held a French lottery ticket that a friend had been renewing for her each year, hoping that one day she might win the grand prize of 10,000 francs which is French for Franks. <laughs> the hundredth uh, birthday of their late father was approaching, and, and the sisters wanted to do something to honor their father. They wanted to have a party. And it was a small flock of congregants and it says in the story that even fewer in number, aging, cranky, and harboring old grudges amongst themselves, this prospect of, of a party was daunting. For the sins of old brothers and sisters came with late, piercing repentance like a toothache. And the sins of others against them came back with bitter resentment like the poisoning of blood. As this party grows closer, Babette receives a letter from France that she had won the lottery, 10,000 francs. Now the town heard about this and just thought, oh, well, she's going to leave. But Babette not only wanted to stay to celebrate this birthday party, she wanted to pay for it. They weren't expecting much, and in fact, she, Babette leaves for about a week plus to, to gather all these things for the party. She comes back, and 
the, the people of this town, they expect a simple dinner, but they are soon overwhelmed by a feast unlike anything they had ever experienced. The table covered in linen and laden with polished plates and multiple glasses. Babette bringing forth one course after another of the most exquisitely prepared dishes. Wines were decanted, glasses kept full. The elderly celebrants who usually spurned anything but the simplest of foods were largely silent, eating and drinking everything that was put before them, course after abundant course. And as the evening progressed, bitterness subsided, grudges were forgiven, and time itself merged into eternity. The people believed that they had witnessed something of a miracle. What kind of table do we expect God to set for us? What do we expect when we come to sit at this table? Do we expect scarcity or abundance? We'll find that, that he is a God of abundance, a God who's not in a hurry, a God who rejoices over us with singing, who keeps our glasses full. He sets a table for the tired and the bitter and unforgiving, inviting us to a feast that we did not expect. A feast where we are not resigned to the kids' table, but we get to sit with Jesus. Uh, John Newton, slave trader turned abolitionist, minister and hymn writer, and purveyor of cookies. Um, Fig Newtons, you know. It's a long story. That'll be another sermon. He says this, Look unto him again as he now reigns in glory, possessed of all power in heaven and in earth, with thousands and thousands of saints and angels worshiping before him, and 10,000 times 10,000 ministering unto him. And then compare your sins with his blood, your wants with his fullness, your unbelief with his faithfulness, your weakness with his strength, your inconstancy with his everlasting love. If the Lord opens the eyes of your understanding, you would be astonished at the comparison. Uh, so as the psalm begins with shouting for joy and singing uh, of God's glory, we're going to sing together one verse of amazing grace, one that we probably don't sing as often, but I think will be familiar to you. I believe it will be up here on the screen. So we're just going to sing this together kind of as our, as our closing prayer. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield in portion be. As long as life endures. Amen.